Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm excited to have with me today one of my colleagues, friends, and a fantastic guest, Dr. Michael Conrad Grant. Mike was one of my co-fellows when we were ICU fellows together, and he has since gone on to do not only that ICU fellowship, but a cardiac anesthesia fellowship. He's an assistant professor of anesthesia, both cardiac and critical care, and he heads up our ERAS programs here at Johns Hopkins. I'm having him on the show specifically today to talk about one of his new initiatives and something I'm excited to learn more about, the Cardiac ERAS program. Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks very much, Jed. I'm happy to be here. I'm also excited to announce that this episode will be featured on anesthesiologynews.com as part of their ongoing feature of many of our episodes. If you don't know Anesthesiology News, it's a great monthly newspaper for anesthesiologists. They've got all kinds of great content, and you can check it out at anesthesiologynews.com. So let's jump right in, but I want to just do a little bit of review. I did an episode with Dr. Chris Wu a while back, and we talked about ERAS in general. And so I want to just ask you if you can do a basic overview for us, review for people who may not have heard that or who want a little bit of a reminder, what is ERAS and why do we care about it? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the easiest way to kind of give a synopsis around ERAS is to say that it's our best effort at this point to group together a handful of evidence-based process measures that sh- that have been evidenced to reduce the impact of surgery and hasten recovery. And the idea behind it is that you go to the evidence, you find the individual interventions that we know work for the perioperative kind of home, and then you concertedly put them together in a way that allows the patient to get the highest level of evidence, evidence possible uh, and then you know get up and out and after surgery. Great. And ERAS itself stands for Early Recovery After Surgery. Is that right? It's actually Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Good. All right. So Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, and it's a bundle. Now, do those bundles, are they all the same? So, for example, if we say we're going to have an ERAS for colorectal surgery, uh, is that going to be the same nationwide or worldwide or no? So I think I think this is actually kind of where some of the controversy starts, and that is that some believe that each one of these service lines, and even within the same service line, should be identical. And one I think one of what I think is the hallmark of enhanced recovery is that every institution has its own level of expertise. They have their own resources available to them, and it might make sense for you to employ certain process measures in those settings that other institutions may not be able to do or may not feel comfortable doing. And so to to, your, to answer your question specifically, I would say each individual service line has a little bit of a nuance to it, not only because colorectal is not the same as thoracic surgery, but also individual institutions aren't the same. And so these process measures are tailored to those environments. Great. All right. So they are going to, these protocols will differ a little from the type of surgery to a different type of surgery, as you said, from thoracic maybe to uh, colorectal to OBGYN. Uh, and They may differ from institution to institution for the very good reasons that you just laid out. So what about, are there any common themes? Are there, are there anything that just kind of is a, is part of almost any, or maybe any uh, ERAS protocol, regardless of where or what kind of surgery? Yeah. So again, you know, some of the, some of the things that the backbones of these programs are that you want to shorten as much as possible the time to nutrition. So we try our best to liberate NPO status. 
You want to get people up and mobilized as early as possible. So one of the hallmarks of every program is that you get up out of bed almost immediately. And then the last hallmark, probably one of the most important, is that we try to lessen the use of opioids as much as possible. And so many of these protocols um, tailor themselves to using as many multimodals as humanly possible to try to reduce that opioid burden. Great. All right. So that's a fantastic kind of basic overview of ERAS. And again, I would refer listeners if you want more information to the episode with Dr. Chris Wu. But let's now move on to cardiac ERAS, which I believe is something we're doing fairly recently that you've been part of setting up. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Yep. So tell me about cardiac ERAS. What, uh, why, did, why was it around? Why is it only starting so much later than the others? Yeah, so I think the main reason that you're seeing a bit of a delay in the adoption of this kind of enhanced recovery umbrella to cardiac is that there has been a belief that this is inherently different than other surgeries. And there's probably some reasonableness to that. Um, So for example, they use cardiopulmonary bypass very commonly. They tend to be patients that have um, primary ischemia as their reason for coming into surgery. And they tend to have a host of comorbidities that maybe you don't see in some other surgical forms. And so there's been a bit of a reluctance for us to be more liberal in our strategies around caring for those patients. I think the other piece to this is that much of what happens in the surgical home around cardiac surgery has been driven often by cardiac surgeons. And um, for many, many years, cardiac surgeons have led, in fact, led pathway development around surgery. And so I think the belief has been, at least up until very recently, that they are doing enhanced recovery, that the belief was that why would we do this in this group if we've already done pathways in this group for decades and decades? And, and to their point, I think that some elements of that are true. And I think what we're starting to see is that it's really in the philosophy around enhanced recovery that's a little bit different. We'll, we can kind of go through some of that. And there's been pilot programs that probably cross over enhanced recovery that go back to the 90s. Um, but what we're really talking about with enhanced recovery is genuinely different than what we've seen before. Great. So when we talk about uh, the protocols that surgeons were developing, am I right that what I'm hearing you say is basically they had protocols and they kind of felt like, look, given our population, given the surgeries we do, this is the earliest recovery, the most enhanced recovery we can do? Yeah. So I'll give you a good example. So in the 1990s, there was something called fast-track cardiac surgery, and that was led by a guy named Engelman. And um, and what the, the backbone of that was, we're going to dramatically reduce the amount of opioids that we give. We're going to get people extubated as early as possible after surgery. And that's going to be the hallmark of what we're kind of offering. And what they showed was, yeah, we got patients extubated earlier, but it didn't translate then into shortened length of stay. And they actually didn't see much difference in terms of complication rates. And although there was a lot of enthusiasm around that protocol, there wasn't a lot of momentum that carried it forward into other areas. I think the other difference there was, again, that was led by cardiac surgeons. And there wasn't a lot of communication kind of over the drape. There wasn't a lot of communication to the other kind of ancillary services. And so although there was a momentum for this in the 90s, that momentum kind of, for lack of a better way to say it, died off over the next couple of decades. And it's really started to pick up steam here more recently. And what, why is that? What is what has kind of breathed life back into these things? So I'll tell you, I think it, I think there's a lot of things that kind of play into this, but I'll tell you, I think the number one thing is that they're really starting to see a lot of the successes of all these other service lines. And there is a national and international push to have the enhanced recovery umbrella applied to all surgery. Mm-hmm. 
And I think the other thing is that they're starting to have an appreciation for the for the real philosophy around enhanced recovery is this concept around transdisciplinary medicine. And rather than having a single person guide a ship through a harbor, what you're really interested in is getting all of the expertise in the area. And in a way, they can focus a lot more on the things they were really trained to do, be excellent intraoperative uh, clinicians and technicians, and also then steer the specific things they know how to do best. And the rest of the groups that are around them should be doing what they do best. And, and, and in a big way, that's the new philosophy. And that does inherently differ from what they had really tried to pilot in the 90s. Great. So now it's much more multidisciplinary. We've got the surgeons still involved, obviously, but also anesthesia, respiratory therapy, nursing, et cetera. That's exactly right. And so what we often start with whenever you're putting together an enhanced recovery kind of consortium is that you need the leaders from all the disciplines. And so all of these people are sitting in a room discussing all of the finer points of this, using evidence to kind of give them an idea what these protocols should look like. And then as they employ them, the pieces that aren't fitting or aren't working quite as well, it's really that individual discipline that should be teasing those things out. And it's inappropriate, as we know now, for a single person to have any concept of what the entire service line looks like. And so as a result of that, it's freeing in a way for a surgeon to be able to focus on the things they do incredibly well and allow the rest of us who do the things we do really well to focus on those. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the specifics. What does a cardiac ERAS protocol look like? Yeah. So, you know, it, just like any enhanced recovery protocol, we think of these in buckets. So we think of a preoperative bucket, an intraoperative bucket, and a postoperative bucket. And within each of those buckets, you're going to start hanging the individual interventions. So our outline looks a little bit like this. That preoperative bucket still has some of the same things that you'd expect from the colorectal pathways, which include a carbohydrate drink beforehand and liberation of an MPO status. So we're letting people drink up to two hours before going into surgery. We're also giving them a medication bundle. And that medication bundle, at least for our procedures right now, includes two multimodal pain medications in the form of Tylenol and Gabapentin. And we've really tried to limit the preoperative setting as much as we can to just those elements, with the exception of we've really kind of over, overhauled our preoperative education as well. And so the patients now are engaged from the very beginning. They know that what they're coming in is the, coming in to get is not only a surgery but a, a really a, a whole process. And you know the program is outlined for them from the beginning. So that's the hallmark of our pre-op. Great. So let me ask you a couple questions about that. The carb drink, so that's going to be 20 ounces of so Gatorade? So, right. So we use 20 ounces of traditional Gatorade, and so that comes out to about 25 grams of carbohydrates, which is where the evidence lies. And when are they supposed to drink that? And what we also recommend, so there's actually, there's lots of data around this, but and, and to be fair, this is not specific to cardiac surgery yet. But what we now know is that we encourage patients to take 25 grams 24 hours beforehand and then an additional 25 grams about two hours beforehand. Okay, so twice. Interesting. All right, so once 24 hours beforehand, once right two hours beforehand, and then that two hours beforehand is their endpoint. Then they don't drink anything else. You got it. Um, until probably they're sitting in pre-op when they, they drink a small drink of water with their pills. Yep, glass of water with pills. That's right. Great. All right, and so those pills you said are going to be Tylenol and Gabapentin, assuming there's no contraindications. Contraindications for Tylenol, I assume, would be 
recent prior use of Tylenol or liver disease mm-hmm. and gabapentin uh, contraindications? Yeah, specifically it'd be if they have GFRs that are less than 60, we modify the dose. So we start with a 600 milligram as a baseline dose. We reduce that to 300 milligrams in those higher risk patients. We also reduce the dose in older patients. So greater than 70 is our cutoff. So 300 milligrams for those two. All right. And Tylenol is a gram? Yep. Tylenol is a gram. Great. Um, and then I know some ERAS protocols include Celebrex. Uh, why was that left off of these? So that's a great question. And the, the primary reason for that is that uh, about 50% of our patients are undergoing coronary artery bypass grafting. And there is a black box warning around the use of NSAIDs in cabbages. And that's a longstanding issue. And what they actually found, and still not clear what the mechanism is, is that those patients actually end up with higher risk of ischemia around cabbage. So we are, we do our best to avoid NSAIDs in that pos- in that population. And so for just to make sure we didn't have any crossover or any risk of any kind, we just left it off the pathway. Gotcha. That's great. All right. And then in terms of kind of the approach to the patient education, so you're letting them know instead of, hey, you're coming in for surgery, you're letting them know you're coming in for this whole kind of experience, this whole protocol. Are there other things, ways in which you kind of clarify? Is it all just written kind of sheets they get? Do they get any kind of personal phone call? How are we doing this in a way that's making yeah, it effective? Yeah, so it's great. So they have their preoperative um, evaluation with the surgeons. The surgeons give them actually a large binder. That binder literally walks them through every individual day that they're going to be here. So it actually gives them a way for them to kind of map their progress. Um, in addition, they have videos, so individual videos that they can access that talk about individual things like for example, sternal precautions after you undergo major surgery in the chest and things of that nature. And there's a series of these videos that they have access to. Some of these were actually created prior to us creating the enhanced recovery umbrella, um, but they marry quite well with the evidence-based portion of this. And so we've carried that through into this protocol as well. Great. And actually one of the things we're really hoping and we're waiting on these data is to see that the compliance with being able to view some of these videos and having access and benefit from them actually goes up now that they've kind of been enrolled in this big comprehensive pathway. Right. Excellent. All right. So that's the pre-op portion. How about intra-op? So I think the biggest overhaul that we've had is in the intraoperative anesthetic. So again, the the hallmark of the intraoperative anesthetic is that we try to limit the use of opioids wherever possible. And so what this looks like is we've gone to lots of complementary infusions. So I'll give you an outline. We would do a Presidex infusion from the very beginning. In addition, we would do ketamine infusion from the very beginning. We would mirror that with uh, the use of a rebolus of our Tylenol intravenously if you were there in the operating room for more than six hours. We try to limit the use of midazolam to just a couple of milligrams if necessary at the beginning of the case. We also then have focused on trying to avoid the use of normal saline. So one of the other pushes is to try to stay on a balanced salt solution where possible. We've incorporated what we're calling a goal-directed perfusion protocol, um, the details of which have been outlined quite a bit by one of my colleagues, uh, Slava Baradka. And that's something that's been around for about six to eight months as well, and so that's been a nice overlap with our initiative here. And then uh, a number of other kind of smaller complementary pieces. So we do a comprehensive lung protective ventilation strategy. So patients are ventilated with six to eight milligrams per kilo of predicted body weight. They get PEEP of greater than five, and we advocate for intermittent uh, recruitment maneuvers throughout the course of the case. 
And then at the end of the case, our main goal is for patients to be warm. So we warm up the room and warm up the patient. So our goal is a uh, is greater than 35.5 degrees Celsius. We want to be fully reversed from all paralytic. And we are now extubating roughly 25 to 30% of our patients in the operating room. That's great. All right, so let's go through these a little bit. So we're limiting opioids. Everyone's getting a Presidex and a ketamine infusion. Correct. Uh, Are you doing a loading dose of the Presidex? So we don't load, uh, primarily just to kind of avoid any of the hemodynamic side Mm -hmm. effects. And this is, the infusion is starting pre or post induction? So they start after induction. We will set it up the moment that our central lines go in. So our central lines will be placed immediately. We connect it up and we start our Presidex and ketamine. And what are you starting at? Dose. So our ketamine is what we call subhypnotic dose. And so that's at our institution, we run it at 0.25 milligrams per kilo per hour. And the Presidex is run at approximately one. But that's just for the first two hours. So it's almost like providing a little bit of a mini load. Yep. And then we back it off substantially. And the reason we back it off is because by then you've gone through most of the caustic portion of the procedure, the actual incision in the pericardiotomy. And at that point, you're able to back off your Presidex. And again, you're not having any, any, anywhere near the same hemodynamic effects. Um, but you're also able to get the patient teed up for liberation from the ventilator by the end of the case. Great. All right. So that's starting Presidex at one milligram per kilogram per, uh, sorry, one microgram per kilogram per hour. Yep. That's Presidex is that strange one. That's not mics per kilo per minute. It's mics per kilo per hour. So starting at one for two hours, then backing off to 0.4-ish. Okay. About 0.4. So back, cutting it about in half, a little less. Ketamine at 0.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour, which is something like three mics per kilo per minute, uh, though I'd have to do the math to tell you for sure, but it's, it's that subhypnotic dose. And then also no loading dose of ketamine, or are you giving? Yeah, so that's the other one is um, we will, certainly our providers will sometimes use ketamine just because it's hemodynamically a bit more stable than some of the other induction options. But for the protocol itself, we do no load. And the primary reason for that is um, there's a Lancet article from this past year that basically said that if you're using loads, there's a chance you'll increase hallucination rates and maybe not get the same benefits that you had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so we really just use the subhypnotic dose. Great. All right. So some people might choose to use ketamine as an induction medication, but that is a provider choice that's separate from the ERAS That's protocol. correct. Yep. All right. Uh, and then you redose Tylenol through the IV route if it's been more than six hours since they got their pre-op dose, limiting Versed, either avoiding it or limiting it to, to a very small amount if needed, avoiding normal saline, and that's because of the metabolic acidosis and the potential negative renal effects that you see. You got it. That's exactly right. And so is there a preference, LR, Plasmalite? So at our institution, we use Plasmalite. Um, it tends to be something that fits with our, our perfusion protocol as well, but either one would probably be very reasonable. And is there any um, attempt to limit the total amount of crystalloid given? Or So I love this question, and this is something that's hotly debated actually right now. The reason for that is there's also a very, very large article that came out recently um, out of Australia, and they showed that l- a significant limitation of fluids ad hoc is probably not advisable. Mm-hmm. And so we don't put a specific value on the amount of fluids that we provide. We still say essentially this is a goal-directed perfusion or goal-directed uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. And we don't, again, we don't give specific parameters around this. One of the things we're teasing out as we're going forward is whether or not there'd be some benefit to using something like an Edwards fluid monitor. We're not overwhelmingly satisfied with the protocols that are available just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, but what we do want to do is at the very least use a balanced salt solution yep. regardless. Great. All right. 
Are these patients getting swans? Some of them, none of them? It's also a great question. So again, we try our best to do as few aligns as possible. And so we try our best to limit the use of swans. I don't have exact numbers, but I don't think we use more than about 20% of our cases get Mm -hmm. swans. Um, There are a couple of providers that do prefer the use of swans. And so for the sake of the actual protocol itself, we don't say that it's a limiter or not. Great. All right. So you mentioned um, Slava's goal-directed perfusion protocol. So we can certainly um, post an article of his about that, but give me the brief overview. What is that? Sure. Yeah, so what this really does is this looks at specifically oxygen delivery as your surrogate for whether or not you're perfusing adequately. And so what we do on bypass is we do serial lactates. that gives us some sense of the kind of global perfusion And then as we go, if we start seeing things like hypotension, there's a very set algorithm on how we manage that hypotension. And it includes things like initially we'll use some kind of alpha agonist like phenylephrine. If that does not fail, by if that fails up to a certain dose, then we'll actually start to increase our flows on the actual machine itself. And if we've met a certain goal on flows and we're still not getting what we need, then we would add on something even stronger, so like a norepinephrine while we're on the actual bypass run. All of this is in conjunction with what we call zero balance, where we're doing something called Z-buffing, where we're giving some fluid and removing that fluid in a very specific way. All the while, we're trying our best to limit the amount of ultrafiltration that's occurring during the course of that procedure. Because what we don't want is a patient who comes in, even who's decompensated heart failure, and gets a lot of fluid removed during the course of the procedure. Um, because, again, by surrogacy, you kind of knock them back into being you know, under fluid resuscitated, and that's in and of itself a bad thing as well. And so essentially what we're trying to do is, again, be as goal-oriented as possible Um, but also algorithmic uh, to allow all of our perfusionists to manage those patients in exactly the same way. Great. All right. So this is another multidisciplinary piece of this because it's uh, a cooperation with at least anesthesia and the perfusion team. That's right. Um, Now, I don't know if it's done similarly everywhere, but certainly here we have dedicated perfusionists who are running the bypass machine. Yeah. And so my, my understanding is that this is pretty typical of virtually all institutions at this point. Okay, great. Um, all right, so then lung protective ventilation. So I think pretty standard these days, at least I hope, that, that regardless of the surgery, we're trying to keep people in the 6 to 8 mLs per kilo predicted body weight range. It sounds like you're doing that too for these protocols. Uh, and I, I guess I just would remind listeners that predicted body weight is really the key there, not total body weight, and that is determined only by gender and height. And you can easily look up those uh, predicted body weight tables. And so is it uh, provider preference, six, seven, or eight? Or do you start at six and titrate up if needed? We say start at six. In fact, I'd go lower than six if I could. Data doesn't necessarily bear it out yet, but I think we're going to be getting to the point where we start seeing lower is better, even in healthies who are undergoing major surgery. Great. And so this is for the non-bypass portion. Obviously, you're not ventilating at all during bypass. So also a bit of a topic of debate. So there is one published enhanced recovery protocol that actually uses some level of CPAP while the patients are on cardiopulmonary bypass. It's a surgical preference that we not do that at this point. Okay. Um, there's really not a lot of evidence in this area, but it's it's an opportunity going forward. Interesting. All right. And then PEEP, greater than five. So at any particular number, six, seven, eight, or just... Again, I'm happy to keep on going. Now, I will allude briefly. So we now know, at least in the ARDS literature, that something called driving pressure may even be a better surrogate for whether or not lungs are protected. 
we're very interested in whether or not that might be something that could cross over into our patient population as well. Mm -hmm. So what that may dictate for us is that we actually need a lower PEEP than what we might have imagined or vice versa. So I think what you'll see in the next couple of years is that driving pressure will probably be the way that we manage these patients. Great. All right. Well, that'll be interesting to see as well. Um, Intermittent recruitment maneuvers, I know, are also a controversial topic. You got it. Um, When you advocate for them, how are you advocating that they be done? Yeah. So for the ease of just remembering, we do what is set on our machines, which is, I believe, 30 centimeters of water for 15 seconds. Okay. And that's just a preset on our home machines. You push go and it does. You push go and it does your recruitment. Now, what I will say is that every, all amalgamations of intermittent have been studied, 20 for 20, 30 for 30, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there's also recent literature that suggests there may not be as much benefit to these as what we had originally thought right. due to the hemodynamic instability that comes with it. Right. We don't have that data in healthies yet, and so that's an ongoing kind of discussion. What we've decided is to go with the most recent approximation of protective strategies, which is to keep them live, yep. and so we've carried that forward. Great. All right. So perhaps we'll see more on that as well in the future. The one interesting thing, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I think when, you're, when you are doing low lung volume, so let's say you're doing six cc's per kilo of predicted body weight, you may not have as accurate an ability to use things like your pulse pressure variation uh, or your systolic pressure variation in your A-line tracing uh, as a indicator of volume uh, That's responsiveness. Exactly right. yep. But I do believe it's uh, been shown to be safe. You can increase that uh, tidal volume to 8 or even to 10 cc's per kilo for a, a minute while you assess volume responsiveness and then go back down. I think it's a totally reasonable strategy. Um, I will say an outlier for this specific patient group is that we also happen to have an echo probe in all of our patients. So we, we have an opportunity to monitor that in a very different way. Better way. But, yeah, very reasonable. Yeah, good. All right. So in general, for people using low tidal volume, whether it's cardiac surgery or beyond, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, and if you don't have an echo probe in. Now, uh, this is off topic, but uh, is there any, I guess there are patients who you might not have an echo probe in if they have, for example, achalasia or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So so there are a subset of patients that won't end up with an echo. You know, we're a teaching hospital, and so a lot of this is about having our fellows trained as well. Right. Um, so we do universally place it. I would say that, um, you know, some of the data suggests it maybe isn't as efficacious in patients who are undergoing primary cabbages. And so for that reason, you may, in your own institution, articulate this as being a way to limit some of your monitoring. And by the way, that's part of enhanced recovery is we want to be thoughtful about the monitoring. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, I think you can make an argument that it doesn't necessarily be needed in those protocols. Right. Great. All right. Warming, you mentioned. So obviously, generally, part of cardiac surgery is going to be cooling and then rewarming. Is the difference here that we're being a little more aggressive about the rewarming, rewarming the room, rewarming obviously through the bypass circuit? I'm, I'm assuming they also have a bear hugger rewarming device on Yeah, so we stopped just short of asking the surgeons to have a universal warming and cooling protocol on pump because there's, this is a very, very intimate thing for each individual surgeon. Okay. But what we did advocate for, and I'll say strongly, is that after we've come off bypass, there's really no great reason to have a patient cool. For any reason. And so what we've done is we've now put in our language that we're heating up the room, we're going to bear hugger the patient, and the patient can't leave the OR until they're a certain temperature. Great. And that temperature is 35.5 at the moment. Yeah, 35.5 is where we find, um, at least institutionally, we're allowed to, quote, unquote, reverse the patient. Mm -hmm. And then in in addition, we want to stave off all of the things that come with being, you know, cool. We don't want surgical site infections. We obviously want them to be able to be um, uh, to stave off coagulopathy. So this yep. is the right approach. 
Great. All right. And then you mentioned reversal. So uh, these patients are getting fully reversed in the OR, which is definitely new and I think fantastic. Uh, are they getting reversed with Sugamidex, with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, or depends? I love the question. So again, very provider dependent. And we, uh, and one of the other pieces, this is a great way to say this, is that enhanced recovery is not to remove the autonomy of the provider in any way. It's, a pro- it's supposed to provide a set of guidelines mm-hmm. for what we believe is the evidence. Yep. And the evidence here, frankly, is that we don't know whether Sugamidex is superior. Um, you may have anecdotal belief about that. And so we suggest either is a reasonable approach. I, in my personal practice, use Sugamidex. Um, I have been very happy with the efficacy. And for the patients that I've cared for, despite some of the risks around things like end-stage renal failure and those kinds of things, I use Sugamidex in those settings, and I've, I've been pleased. Great. Now, extubation is an interesting one. So you said something about like about 25% of patients are now getting extubated in the OR. That's up from zero not too long ago. So you that's a huge, huge change for the better. Obviously, any patient who's going to get extubated has to meet your basic extubation criteria. They have to be able to be strong. They have to pull reasonable tidal volumes. They have to be able to oxygenate and ventilate. But are there other, so assuming you've got a subpopulation of patients who are doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. are there some who, based on the surgery or the length of the surgery or the ongoing bleeding, that you might say, well, yeah, you look like you could be extubated right now, but we're not going to do it because of other things? Yeah, so I, I, I like the question because this is probably the most controversial piece that we have in our protocol so far. And what I'll tell you is because of the data from the 1990s where they suggested that earlier extubation didn't necessarily lead to better outcomes, we do have some providers here who are a little bit leery of the idea of extubating with the risk being that those patients may need to be reintubated for things outside of the patient, meaning Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. things like surgical interests, new ischemia from one of the grafts being problematic, or potentially bleeding. And so these are some considerations that are unique to cardiac surgery that you may not see in other surgical settings. Those things being said, we are strong advocates for extubation, and we believe that, you know, given our training, we have the skill set to place that tube even in an urgent setting. Right. And so we've pushed forward with lots of this. But you're right. These considerations are important. And to your point, what we've really tried to do is engage the surgeons from not only the beginning of the surgery but throughout the surgery to determine that the extubation is as multimodal as anything else, or, uh, multidisciplinary as, every, mm-hmm. as anything mm-hmm. else, um, because the interest of their patients is important, and not only that, our relationship with the surgeons is just as important. Yep. So this is a discussion at the end of the case. What do you think? Can this patient be extubated? Obviously, if they don't meet basic extubation criteria, they're not going to be extubated regardless, but if they do, then it's a discussion, and you're taking into account other things like chance of having to be reoperated on ongoing bleeding, et cetera. So it's all right. And, you know, the metrics around extubation after cardiac surgery are shifting. So it, up until now, 24 hours is our goal. We want patients to have less than 24 hours of mechanical ventilation for the entirety of their hospital stay after cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. It's looking as though that number may shift to six hours. Mm. It's not official yet, but that's the new kind of benchmark. Okay. And so we're really trying to push that. And so extubating in the operating room gives us six additional hours hours, why not? The other piece is, and maybe this is also within your point, there is a lot of work that goes into getting a patient extubated once they've made it to an ICU. And within that ICU, there are stringent protocols around that extubation. And even in the best of circumstances, they bump right up against that six-hour mark in trying to meet those goals. We in the operating room are a little bit more liberal about what those goals might look like. 
that's a double-edged sword. And so we recognize that we're a little bit more inclined to have a patient extubated on tenuous circumstances, and we have to account for that. Yep. So that's why this remains controversial, but we're, we've been pleased with the results so far. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I also think there's probably something in here that's helpful about the trend that I think we're seeing toward having more cardiac anesthesiologists working in cardiac surgical ICUs. And so uh, we certainly are seeing that here, and I think it's probably a, a national trend as well. Um, and, and then you've got the same people who are used to caring for those people and making those extubation decisions in the OR who are managing the either already extubated but maybe a little tenuous or not patient when they arrive in the ICU. So I think it's I think that's really well said, and I think that uh, definitely at our institution, the influx of dual trained anesthesiologists has been a major coup for this program's success. And I think as we go forward, it it really is that true multidisciplinary option where you have somebody who's comfortable with each of these individual phases, who's able to care for that patient as they're making this very difficult transition and get them up and going right away. Yeah, fantastic. All right, let's move to the post-operative portion. What are we doing there? Yeah, so the post-operative portion is probably the most um, malleable of all the the sections. Mm -hmm. Um, But the data suggests the following. So you need to have a comprehensive antiarrhythmia protocol. That's unique to cardiac surgery and very few other surgeries. You need to have a comprehensive diuresis protocol. Again, probably unique to cardiac surgery and very few other surgeries. We want patients up and mobilizing as early as humanly possible. And at our institution, that means out of bed to a chair the night of the procedure and walking twice the next day. We want patients eating right away. So they're on clears the night of the procedure, and they're being graduated a full diet as they tolerate it throughout the next day. And then there's a number of other pieces. So, uh, you know, we have all the ancillary groups in place to kind of care for that patient. So nutrition's on board no matter what. We've got our physical therapists on board no matter what. And so we identify patients that maybe aren't meeting some of those pathways goals as early as possible, and they're getting specialized attention in order to get them back on path. And then the last piece, and again, probably one of the more controversial, is how do you manage things like lines, tubes, and drains? So I think we're pretty good about the way we manage Foley's, and we get Foley's out on post-operative day one almost universally. We get, we get our hard tubes out on, a, again, about post-op day one, usually the afternoon of post-op day one. And then the rest of the management we've allowed to kind of stay a little bit surgeon-specific for the time being because despite there not being great evidence for any specific management, there's also not great evidence for any specific management. And so we want to make sure that, again, I I just told you, we're not trying to remove autonomy of any of these providers, but we're trying to give the best level of evidence possible. And so we've tried not to touch on that piece too much, save for one thing. And what we want is consistency along the service line wherever possible. And so as we start to audit this program going forward, if we see this as being one of those pieces that's not working quite well, that'll be addressed as we kind of go forward and iterate. Great. What about delirium prevention? So I assume certainly all the non-pharmacologic things are being done, and that would be uh, lights off at night, lights on during the day, um, glasses if they use them, earplugs if they are... um, Hearing aids, if they use them, maybe earplugs at night, don't know. Um, so all that, I assume, is, is being Yeah, done. so I have to say that the, they've made 
we've been very lucky because we've had some parallel pushes along the way. And one of the bigger ones that we've had in the last about 18 months within this unit is a delirium protocol as well. Mm-hmm. Limiting sedation, awakening trials, et cetera. So all of these things continue to be a very, very important piece of this. Yep. And the addition of the Presidex, which was a medication we just had not used for a long time, at the very least limits the use of propofol, which, um, you know, even in the best of circumstances is probably deliriogenic. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Presidex. So uh, you're using it intraoperatively. Uh, and there's some interesting data, at least in animals, suggesting that um, Presidex use may prevent some of the onset of delirium. But also there's some trials in humans suggesting that post-operative use in the mm-hmm. ICU may prevent delirium. Or, or is that being yeah. considered? So, so it's a great question. And what we did was we made a big push from using propofol in the OR to using Presidex in the OR. Mm-hmm. And this was... Uh, the series of conversations that led us to believing this is the best evidence. And again, from an institutional standpoint, this became a little bit more obtainable a medication recently just because of the way that our formulary has worked. Mm-hmm. And what we now do is carry that into the postoperative phase. And there's a lot of things about it that are beneficial, and not the least of which is we're encouraged by the data you just mentioned. Um, and we're hopeful, and you're right, there is at least one large um, um, trial that was done, it's published in anesthesiology after cardiac surgery that suggests Presidex may have all these benefits. Yeah. And we're trying to piggyback that if we possibly can. Okay. So our patients who are on Presidex in the OR, which it sounds like is now all of them, are they going to the ICU still on it? You got it. And, all of them. And okay. in my case, at the very least, they stay on it whether they're extubated or not. Yeah. And that's okay. in part because you want to make sure that they maintain some quorum when they're getting into the ICU and getting settled in. Right. Now, do you know if the ICU providers are continuing that through, let's say, the first night in the in the ICU, or is that pretty variable? So it, I think that is variable, and that's part of the next phase of what we're tackling. Mm-hmm. And so the tra- traditionally what we've tried to do is eliminate as many of these infusions as possible, and I still think that's probably the right way to go, provided there's not an indication for its continuation. And in that setting, clearly, we would continue it on. Yep. Great. All right. Let's back up to some of the pieces of this post-op bundle. So antiarrhythmic protocol, is that going to be a debate between, let's say, a beta blocker and amiodarone, or what are we doing? Yeah, so I think it's great. So we we looked, um, I want to say again, about 18 months ago at uh, the Papa Bear trial and really looked at how we could incorporate amiodarone a little more consistently across our service line. And um, there are some deep-seated feelings around this. And so what we've done is push back a little bit. And this has gone to the point now where we're going to go back to us really doing it the way the trial intended, which is to give a prophylaxis uh, against anti, uh, against uh, arrhythmia and then carry it through the postoperative phase. The other thing we've done is if they have evidence of arrhythmia, we're going to load those patients on an intravena- with an intravenous medication as opposed to trying to transition quickly to PO. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea is to get the efficacy of the medication as early as possible and then move on with the rest of their hospital course. Yep. So they're going to get an amio. Are they getting pre-op amio? Yeah. So the way it works is it's five days of preoperative amiodarone. It's a essentially a PO load mm-hmm. um, that they'll carry through to the surgical date itself. And if they need to complete the load will do so through an IV form, mm-hmm. or if they've completed their loan, we'll check to see whether or not they need something else. Yep, great. And then if they develop uh, AFib or an arrhythmia, usually AFib post-op, you're going to, if they're already loaded, you're going to go to an IV drip. You got it. Great. All right. Um, diuresis protocol. 
Yeah. So this is LASIKs, I assume? You got it. All right. And when are we starting? Post-op day? So the idea is post-op day one, if they can tolerate it. We're going to get it going right away. Um, And as you can probably imagine, the number one thing that prevents us from doing that is hypotension. Yep. And so we have to be thoughtful about that and still part of the autonomy of the provider. But importantly, we want the set point to be we're giving LASIKs and we're getting these patients moving. And those two things have really started to kind of move the needle quite a bit. Yeah. That's great. Okay. And I, I assume the dose is variable depending on whether the patient is Lasix naive or not. All based on GFR for the most part. Yep. But yes, that is the short answer is yes. Great. All right. We're getting them up. We're getting them to a chair post-op day zero, ambulating twice post-op day one, getting them eating, uh, drinking clears post-op day zero, uh, assuming they're extubated. Now, what about patients who remain intubated? Uh, are they getting tube feeds? And if so, when? I love the question. So we haven't tackled this question, but my personal predilection would be to feed them immediately. So the moment they've arrived in your ICU, you settle them in, and an hour later, you start tube feeds. Hook up the tube feeds. Yep. Great. And nutrition is following. Um, PTOT is following. And I love that you're saying they're getting kind of identified early. Are they a little weaker than normal, et cetera? So they're getting some some personalized attention. Uh, Foley's coming out post-up day one, which I think is new. It used to be post-up day two. Mm-hmm. So we're getting them out early. And then the hard tube, and I think pretty standard here, you may know, I don't if it's standard everywhere, uh, is uh, most commonly we'll see one hard tube and two soft tubes or two Blake tubes. Yeah, that's tubes. about right. Mm-hmm. So the hard tube comes out post-op day one. Uh, they've usually got wires and Blake tubes. Those come out variable. That is variable. And, you know, the other piece that's variable is dual antiplatelet therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little bit controversial about when to start that therapy. We've advocated for it to start as early as possible, um, and I think that there's a little bit of reticence around that. So, again, you know, these are conversations that are ongoing as we iterate the program. Yep. Now, how about post-discharge? Uh, well, I, I let me back up. When are these patients getting discharged, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then are they all getting discharged home to rehab? It depends. Uh, and then is there any follow-up? Are they getting a check-in down the road or anything like that? So I think this is the next phase of all of enhanced recovery. And I think there are some very small kind of early fledgling programs that are starting to do elements of this. And forget enhanced recovery after cardiac surgery for one moment. This really is the area that we're kind of failing patients right now, is that transition from the perioperative phase into the chronic illness state. Mm-hmm. And so to your point... We aren't doing it, and I'm not aware of many places that are so far, and so I think that is what we could improve upon. Now, that said, I'd say still some subset of our patients, 20 30% of our patients, are still going to rehabilitation facilities afterwards. Okay. Um, the majority of them, I think, are up and moving pretty reasonably, maybe a little bit of home nursing every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And then the follow-up is a standard surgical follow-up, unfortunately. And so, again, to your point, I think there's room for improvement in this area. Yeah. Great. All right. So let's end by talking about why we're doing all of this, right? So there must be benefits and remind us what are the benefits? What do we get with a well-executed ERAS protocol that we don't get without it? Yeah. So I love the question. And um, I'll back up again. The one thing that was missing from the big push in the 90s around this um, fast-track cardiac surgery protocol was that it was led by a single person, often the captain of the ship kind of mentality. And it failed to kind of take upon the multidisciplinary approach. That in and of itself is compelling, but not the reason you would do enhanced recovery. The reason you do enhanced recovery is because it allows everybody at all phases of care to have an intimate understanding of where that patient is in the paradigm of their surgery journey. And so everybody has a little bit of an understanding of what their role is. They have ownership of that role. They feel like they can do it well. 
And then in addition, each individual thing that you do, it, it really adds up to this theory of kind of incremental gains. The idea is, I mean, if you're a sports fan, for example, and you watch cyclists, cyclists don't get major, major, major improvements from tweaks. They get very, very, very small ones, almost imperceptible ones. And over the course of time, those tweaks add up to something significant. Mm -hmm. And that's the same philosophy here is that we want to be excellent in each of these individual things. And they add to something that we couldn't have done before. Yeah. And I firmly believe that it's not the six hours you gain from having a patient extubated in the operating room. It's that that patient is then ready for the next phase of care that much earlier. Mm -hmm. And then after you've given them that next piece, they're ready for care that much earlier. And that's where I think the benefit comes. Yeah. The other piece is you're starting to think about the patient as something other than the guy who came in for some rote procedure. You're thinking about this engaged individual who's part of a major pathway in their lives. And so um, it really does become a partnership for that. And, it, and in my, you know, I'll just tell you from a personal standpoint, working with patients through enhanced recovery, it just feels good. You yeah. know, and at the end of the day, they feel good. You feel good. It's something you push towards as a group. And yep. it's not just kind of Tuesday. It's a big day. And yep. so I think all those real feel good things are great, but it also really does have an impact. Yeah, I think that's great. And then from a metric standpoint, we're seeing, uh, at least at the greater ERAS um, uh, kind of uh, world, we're seeing reduced length of stay. We're seeing reduced hospital costs, um, other things. Yeah, so the data has – it's actually almost a little too, big, too good to be true. So, yeah, the, the ones everybody talks about are the shortened length of stay and the shortened costs. The other things are that you shorten the rates of hospital-associated infections. Um, so that's pneumonia. That's urinary tract infections. That's surgical site infections. It's actually something our group put out fairly recently. That's great. The other one that we're seeing is um, uh, rates of arrhythmia are significantly reduced. Um, and uh, in our own populations, what we're seeing is a dramatic, dramatic reduction in opioids and then opioid-related side effects. And so, again, big coup on those things for sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, this is really exciting stuff, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. Is there anything you think we left out that we should cover before we finish up? No, I don't think so. I think I think the only other thing to mention is that you know, enhanced recovery takes on a lot of um, different verbiage, and I think many people have very intimate beliefs about what it means and what the philosophy is. And I guess one thing to say is that I think they're probably all right and all wrong. You know, the way I think about enhanced recovery is. Um, it's an opportunity for you to have a truly formalized program that includes all the people who should be involved. And it can look however you want it to look, provided you're being thoughtful of the evidence and then sensitive to what you've got at your institution. And I think if you're doing that, uh, everybody benefits from it. Yep. And of course, as you said, even here where we've put a huge, uh, by we, I mean you, have put a huge ton of time and work into this, uh, it's going to be an ongoing process. It's going to be evaluated. It's going to be tweaked. It's going to be added to and taken away from uh, and until it gets better and better. So I think that's a really great point. One of the things we often talk about in healthcare is that we're really good at creating programs and really bad at sustaining programs. And one of the things that I still think is missing even from enhanced recovery is this idea that once you've put this thing out there, it's not over, right? right. In fact, that's, that's just the 10%. It's the 90%, which is the maintenance of the program and iteration of the program that you really should be focusing upon. And so to your point, these are ongoing discussions, and you have to improve over time. Yeah, great. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. All right. That was amazing. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. Check out the website, 
accrac.com, that's accrac.com, where you can leave comments on this or any episode and let us know what you thought. Have you instituted a cardiac ERAS protocol at your institution? What have you done? Does it differ from ours? Do you have other thoughts on ERAS in general? We'd love to hear it, and everybody can learn from the comments that you post. You can also, on the website, join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner, and you can check out all the other episodes. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you're interested in helping support the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show and support what we do, and we would be very appreciative. Special thanks, as always, to those who already have become patrons and to Brian Park, who does amazing work putting together outlines for a lot of the episodes. Keep your eye out for those. Welcome to all the CA1s out there who are finishing up their orientation month. I hope you're having a blast and that it continues to be a fun and exciting journey over your next three years. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Mike Grant, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.